can't make it to Mutiny Radio, don't worry, don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer cottage on the mountain ridge with the kayaks. <laughs> Just go to podcast.pcrcollective.org or mutinyradio.fm podcasts and look for Comedy Clubhouse with a K. You can download it for free. But we'd love to see you every Friday, 8 to 10, down here at Mutiny Radio. Laugh off your tushy and save your life. Because you know what's better than laughter? Well, it's a cash cock, baby. (laughs) Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? We'll gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Hey everybody, 
Listen to the weekly review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the weekly review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. Mr. Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there.
charming about wiping with your bare hands. That's why and I use along the Amigo a modern bidet that's a bare necessity for your bathroom. Like some most Americans, no I was hesitant at first. Then I tried it. It was like my Hot soup on a campfire under the bridge. Shelter line stretching around the corner. Welcome to the new world. Check this out. I'm gonna show you how I afforded this car. Family sleeping in the car. Ready? $118. No home, no job, no peace, no rest. Well, the highway is alive and night. But nobody's kidding nobody about where it goes. I'm sitting down here in the campfire line, searching for the ghost of Tom Jones. He pulls a prayer book out of a sleeping bag. Preacher lights up a butt and takes a drag. Waiting for when the last shall be first and the first shall be last. In a cardboard box neath the underpass. I got a one way ticket to the promised land. You got a hole in your belly and a gun in your hand. Sleeping on a pillow of solid rock. Bathing in the city aqueduct. Well, the highway is alive at night. Where it's headed, everybody knows. I'm sitting down here in the campfire line, waiting on the ghost of Tom Jones. against the blood and hatred in the air look for me mom i'll be there wherever somebody's fighting for a place to stand or a decent job or a helping hand wherever somebody's struggling to be free look in their eyes mom you'll see me well, the highway's alive at night But nobody's kidding nobody about where it goes I'm sitting down here in the campfire line With the ghost of old Tom
Hey, Church Choir, I have three albums. Stumble to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping. Out on the streets, the traffic starts jumping with folks like me on the job from nine to five. Working nine to five. Good morning. Sorry, we had a little uh, contretemps there. <clears throat> um, for a minute, my uh, technology here at Mutiny Radio failed me. Probably my own fault. <clears throat> Need to get ready sooner. I when I come in here in the morning, I come in around eight, and I get all involved in all kinds of other things. That was Dolly Parton, of course, 9 to 5. And as we say, it takes someone like Dolly Parton or James Brown or Donna Summer to call our attention to what's going on in a way that doesn't bore us or tire us. A new, fresh way to look at things. When James Brown sings about King Heroin, Dolly Parton, in this case, singing 9 to 5 about the working person's life. Uh, Donna Summer talking about she works hard for your money and you better treat her right. We look around and we see the people who do the work. So yeah, Dolly Parton, 
and um, Bruce Springsteen's take on the ghost of Tom Joad. Tom Joad, of course, the protagonist of Grapes of Wrath. I believe that's a Bob Dylan song. Tom Joad, like Dolly says, you spend your life putting money in his wallet. In Tom Joad's case, there wasn't any work. As a lot of people are finding out now uh, exactly what the position of the worker is in our society. Before that, Guantanamera, uh, the playing for change version, as well as, if you heard it, <laughs> um, Lean on Me version. Maybe we'll play that a little later. What are we talking about today? This is the Labor and Love Show, and you're listening to Mutiny Radio, Saturday morning, 10 to 12, Labor and Love. My name is Bill Morgan, a.k.a. The B. And for two hours every Saturday morning, we talk to you about the labor movement. We read to you about the labor movement. We present videos about the labor movement and provide you with labor history lessons. So come on down, as well as music of social significance, labor and love, where we tell you how it is. That is, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. People are sitting talking about your life, your time here on earth, your time of consciousness here in this life. And they'll take as much as they can from you and pay you as little po as possible for it because that's what they do. Never but never let anyone into your, into your heart who is not a friend of labor it's only a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. And what do we got for you today? We're going to talk about the life and work of Judy Berry. There's some kind of a anniversary involved with Judy Berry. We'll find out about that. Uh, labor history in two minutes. What is your place in the new economy? Well, it's the same as the one in the old economy, which is to work and make money for someone else. What about people who die every day? How many people die every day around the world as a result of their jobs or in work-related situations? We're going to see about decoded and news broke. And talk about the big general strike. This is May. And in May, we look back to the year 1934 and the general strike in San Francisco. There were other general strikes in Minneapolis in the same year. In Oakland in 1946. In Seattle in 1919. I have to run those down, the general strike feature. 
Right now, however, let's listen to Radio Labor, our labor news from all over the world. Radio Labor, where are you? It's not coming through. Well, let's try again. Let's see. Hawaii, the land of grass skirts and palm trees swaying in the ocean breeze, of aloha and luau's in the sunset. But behind the postcard images lies another story of the workers of Hawaii. The 300,000 Polynesians living on the islands when Cook arrived in 1778 had, by the 1850s, been reduced through syphilis, cholera, diarrhea, measles, smallpox, and the common cold to 40,000 and the Howleys, the white men, had arrived. Carl Morden with a description of the streets of Honolulu. If you get into a conversation with a stranger in Honolulu, strike out boldly and address him as captain. Watch him narrowly, and if you see by his countenance that you are on the wrong tack, ask him where he preaches. It is a safe bet that he is either a missionary or captain of a whaler. I am now personally acquainted with 72 captains and 96 missionaries. The captains and ministers form one half of the population. The third fourth is composed of Kanakas and mercantile foreigners and their families. And the final fourth is made up of high officers of the Hawaiian government. And there are just about cats enough for three apiece all around. From Mark Twain's Letters from the Sandwich Islands, as Hawaii was called. By the 1850s, sandalwood and whales had also been decimated. There were sugar plantations, but native labor, Kanaka labor, was hard to find. Congresswoman Patsy Mink. Basically, they are very connected to the land, and their whole cultural heritage, even as it is recited today, is that the land is part of them. And I think the difficulty they had was, you know, working for somebody else who was going to use it to generate commerce. I mean, that idea was completely foreign to the native Hawaiian individual. The missionaries braved a thousand privations to come and make the native permanently miserable by telling him how beautiful and blissful a place heaven is and how nearly impossible it is to get there. And showing him what rapture it is to work all day long for 50 cents to buy food for the next day compared with fishing for pastime and lulling in the shade through eternal summer and eating of the bounty that nobody labored to provide but nature. From Mark Twain. In 1852, a ship arrived in Honolulu that would change the islands forever. Its cargo, 175 Chinese field workers. James Ho, historian at the Hawaii Chinese Museum, and Edward Beechett, professor emeritus at the University of Hawaii. They were uh, treated quite badly. And they were put aboard these sailing ships in a whole of the ships 
And it took about, what, uh, 90 to 100 days to sail from China to Hawaii. And all of that time, many of these young Chinese boys were in the hold of the ships. Some of them died in the hold of the ship, same as the slaves. They had to sign a five-year contract, working 10 hours a day, six days a week for uh, $3 a month. Five o'clock in the morning, march them off to the jungle to chop the jungle down so they could <laughs> grow sugarcane. Many of these boys that came here to work on the sugar plantation were addicted to opium. So many of these Chinese boys never saw a single dime of what they earned because they would go to the sugar plantation stores to draw out opium to smoke. With the Civil War and the blotting out of the southern sugar supplies, and then of course Hawaii became important as a supply of sugar, and so they began bringing more Chinese in. And then they very quickly discovered the Chinese had certain uh, very important human characteristics. They didn't like to be abused. They felt their dignity was being challenged. They were being exploited. So then they bring in Portuguese from the island of Madeira and the Azores. And uh, this doesn't work out too well, although it's better than the Chinese. The Portuguese, Europeans but with a darker skin, often worked as the lunars, the gang bosses. Some found it difficult. Rudy Ariol, retired pineapple worker. My dad was a gang luna, they call it. They take care of about 30 people, you know, but he couldn't, he couldn't take it. He gave it up. He didn't like the way the bosses used to force the people to work. Even if they were sick, they had to work, you know, and they have to produce so much. And what made it worse, his cousin, was was the superintendent of that section. He'd come on a horse and he said, who's not producing? And then if, if he mentioned a name, he said, hey, you boy, get your pay, you're fired. Just like that. That's how bad it was. So he, he didn't like it, so he quit. The plantations were run as a paternalistic system. In exchange for low wages, workers received perquisites, perks. James Sumili, retired plantation worker. You know, everything was real cheap then. The food and the free rental in the plantation. And they serviced us with uh, firewood because uh, we don't have any stove then. They had this store that run by the plantation where you can charge uh, whatever you need and uh, they get it out from your pay <laughs> every month. As well as housing and firewood, the perks included schools, hospitals, clinics, and even bathhouses. Aquan McElrath, retired social worker with the International Longshoremen's and Warehousemen's Union, the ILWU. They erected a wash house for us where we could do our laundry and where the men took baths on one side of the building and the women on the other side and the middle was where you took all of your wash and one of course one of the very early things was that kids were bound to sneak under the galvanized iron and peek at us women who were taking baths in these huge tubs and we learned all of our anatomy that way otherwise we would never have learned it. As missionary descendants were becoming the leaders of commerce on the islands some observers saw an unsettling picture. Edward Asner. In Hawaii, everything socially is what I may call topsy-turvy. The most ultra-exclusive set is the missionary crowd. The humble New Englanders came for the lofty purpose of teaching the Kanaka the true religion. 
So well did they succeed in this, and also in civilizing him, that by the second or third generation he was practically extinct, leaving the sons and grandsons of the missionaries as possessors of the islands themselves. Jack London, Honolulu, 1907. And as Chinese workers began leaving for the cities, the plantation owners turned to a new source of labor, Japan. 200,000 Japanese would arrive over the next 50 years. Some came as families. For bachelors, marriages were arranged, and 10,000 picture brides joined them. The Japanese also brought much of their culture with them. Kiyoshi Ikeda, Professor Emeritus, University of Hawaii, and Senator Daniel Inouye. There are temples and uh, churches, institutional arrangements in which even Japanese training ships came over and Japanese cultural activities, a celebration of imperial holidays that scared the uh, American community in terms of questions of loyalty. Both parents began their lives in plantations. At that time, the contract called for 60 hours a week with four holidays, Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving, and the Emperor's birthday. They put in 10 hours a day, six days a week, and for that, the men received the pay of $15 a month, minus $2.50 for transportation from Japan. The work was hard, and like the blues of American southern plantations, the Japanese had holy, holy bushy music to express their struggles. Congresswoman Mink and Yoshito Takemini, former ILWU unit chairman and member of the state legislature. My grandfather was a rice farmer. He didn't survive very long. and His wife died in childbirth and uh, the six children were orphaned, and only two survived out of the six. So it was a very rough introduction to a place that they were not familiar with. And I can remember being a cane field, yeah, because my father and mother would be working in the field, hoeing, cultivating the cane. I was probably in a nursery basket. I was being nursed by my mother in a cane field. Next came Koreans. Young Ho Che, professor of Korean history, and Edward Beecher. They first arrived in January 1903, and between 1903 and 1905, some 7,200 arrived in Honolulu, mostly as plantation laborers. The Japanese did not like Korean coming to Hawaii because at that time the Japanese laborers pretty much monopolized the labor market and Hawashuga plantations did not want Japanese laborers to have control over their labor situations. You know, the Japanese organizing, Japanese laborers often acting in concert. And they then try importing various other people, all of whom are you know, described as perfect workers until they get there. Then they discover that they're workers. <laughs> and they have these very unpleasant tendencies of asking for more money, less abuse, better living quarters. Filipinos were the next large group. They also found the work hard and the conditions grueling. Sato Kabawachi, retired sugar worker, and the late Carol O'Connor. It was a really hard job, because in my days, if you do cut the cane, you have to carry the cane out 
And I was so young yet, I, could, I didn't have the strength to carry, so the people used to help me. So at the beginning, it was kind of rough for me because you know how it is, eh? it's not that easy. Now listen, when you were asked to go out in the sun and go into the cane break, Away from the tropical breeze, you're subjecting the white man to something that the good Lord did not create him to do. If he had, the people of the world, I think, would have had a white pigment of the skin, and not the variegated colors. Walter Dillingham, Honolulu industrialist and founder of the Hawaii Polo and Racing Club, testifying before the Senate Committee on Immigration, 1921. The plantations were built with segregated camps. Eddie Lopper, former sugar worker and president of ILWU Local 142, and Edward Asner. It was obvious when we grew up, we were wondering as to why there was Filipino camps, only Filipinos, <laughs> Japanese camps, only Japanese, Portuguese camp, only Portuguese. That's the way the company wanted to uh, divide and segregate and see if the races can not bend together, but, you know, talk bad about each other, and the winner would be the company, not the workers. Keep a variety of laborers, and thus prevent any concerted action in case of strikes, for there are few, if any, cases of Japs, Chinese, and Portuguese entering into a strike as a unity. Manager of the McKee Sugar Company, 1895. That variety included workers from Mongolia, Puerto Rico, Siberia, Poland, Spain, Greenland, and at least 10 other countries, including Scotland. Alex Pratt of the Scots in Hawaii project. If you wanted sugar machinery sent to Glasgow, they would get the sugar machinery made and ship it over, and an engineer had to go with it to erect it and put it all together. So that was the introduction of the Scots. There's another fella, he'd never been on a horse in his life. He was a, actually as a fisherman in Aberdeen or someplace. <laughs> Just new in the job, and, you know, at lunchtime, he'd got his little lunch pail or whatever it was they had, and he went and sat among the labourers, and he was eating, and the manager came up and says, don't do that, he says, you don't familiarise with the peons, I suppose you called them. Back in those days, if you had a good education, there was no, not that much competition, really. You'd come over here and do, do well. If somebody from Hawaii was home on a visit and mentioned, you know, nice warm weather and waving palm trees, very tempting, you know. But not always so tempting for many of the field workers. The beginning in the 1890s, there had been protests and strikes, first by the Chinese, then the Japanese, and the specter of a yellow peril arose. Kiyoshi Ikeda, Edward Beecher, and Carol O'Connor. The increasing presence of the Japanese in Hawaii after annexation, there was always the fear that Japanese would colonize and take over. There was a big strike of Japanese workers in 1920, which frightened the political structure and the economic structure in Hawaii almost out of their wits. By calling a general strike of the sugar plantation laborers, the Japanese Labor Federation has forced the issue on the question, is Hawaii to be an American territory or is it to be an oriental province? Japanese Buddhist priests, priests of Asiatic paganism, 
are in an unholy alliance with foreign language school teachers, Japanese newspaper editors, and other subjects of the Mikado to control the industrialism of Hawaii. From the Pacific Commercial Advertiser, Honolulu, 1920. Almost all strikes were on ethnic lines. They led to improvements in living conditions but failed to gain union recognition. And most ethnic strikes were weakened by the lack of support from other groups of workers. In the 1920 strike, Japanese workers were joined by Filipinos, but the alliance fell apart and the strike collapsed. Eddie Lapa and Helen Nitalon Miller, born and raised on a sugar plantation. My father used to work for Kahuku Plantation, and during the strike, they got kicked out of the house. And they all camped here in Honolulu, close to the harbor. Inside of them, they were hurt. They didn't like it, and they talked among themselves. But it was difficult for them to come out in the open, and some did, and they saw what happened. They took the consequences. They were fired, given very bad treatment, or in some ways, depending on what the problem was, they were moved to another plantation. They had no rights. Filipinos struck alone in 1924, and 16 men were killed and 60 jailed. But the discontent continued. Sado Kabawachi and Abba Ramos retired sugar worker and union organizer. Nine hours a day we used to work, and that's your day. We'd have an hour lunch. We used to get together and talk about, hey, we better do something because bringing our wages up. And the one thing I came out of it was always, I said, why don't these guys like this place? Then they say, well, you know, what can you do, you know? You're in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You know, how are you going to get back? can't swim back. The shark will eat you up. Basically, then I came to the conclusion that these guys were held hostage. But word was spreading about a new kind of organizing. And in 1934, the American West Coast stock workers, the longshoremen, went out on a coastwide strike as members of the International Longshore Association, the ILA. One of the aims was to include workers of all races and ethnicities. Edward Beechett. When the uh, 1934 strike came, which was an ILA strike, there were a lot of Hawaiians working on the waterfront in Portland, in Seattle particularly, and in San Francisco. And one of them was very impressed, uh, was Harry Kamoko. And he went back to Hawaii after the 34 strike and began organizing again in Hilo. And uh, the Hilo longshoremen and, and the Honolulu longshoremen, the two principal ports in Hawaii, you know, then applied to the ILA uh, for charters. The director of the ILA in 1936 was Harry Bridges. By 1937, Harry Bridges was the president of a new union, the International Longshoremen's and Warehousemen's Union, the ILWU, and the Hilo and Honolulu Longshoremen were a part of it. The mainland strike's pivotal event had been Bloody Thursday, when two strikers in San Francisco were killed by police. In Hawaii, in Hilo, it was Bloody Monday. A ship was arriving from Kauai with a scab cargo, a cargo loaded by strike breakers. Harry Kamoko had organized a protest, men and women from seven different unions. He had maybe oh, about three or four hundred people, and we're going to have a peaceful demonstration. But the tactic was a Gandhi-like tactic that he'd heard about. They would march down to the dock, and the police had made a police line. You couldn't go across this line. And so Harry's idea was we'd go up to the line and step across it and sit down. And the next line of people go beyond them and sit down until we occupied the entire apron. We checked everybody for weapons of any kind. 
knives, pocket knives and stuff like that, rocks, anything that could be injurious. In other words, we, we were policing now the group so that no one would go astray and do something and, you know, get us all mixed up with the law. They were going to have two different police lines. They had organized uh, the police force that they had at that time uh, into three different brigades, a gun brigade, a club brigade, and a tear gas brigade. We came to a place, we sat down. Everybody sat down. Some of the guys were singing songs, and some guys were cracking jokes and laughing and so forth. The door of Pier 2 started rising. A policeman came out with a rifle and a fixed bayonet. And he walked right up to Cairo Ratani, was the first man he approached. And he told him, come on, get out of here. He whacked him right on the side of the jaw. And he came down like that and shot him right on the ankle. This is when the sheriff gave the order to fire. So that's when the bullets start flying. No one died, but 50 were shot, and it became known as the Hilo Massacre. Jack Hall, a sailor who arrived in Honolulu in 1935 and who would become the leading figure in Hawaii's labor movement, was also organizing. But he was organizing plantation field workers on Kauai. Pineapple workers had a contract, and sugar workers were in final negotiations when all organizing stopped. Obon festivals, Japanese street festivals celebrated every year in Hawaii, also stopped. Yesterday, December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Everything changed. Edward Beechett, Abba Ramos, and Warren Nishimoto, director of the Center for Oral History, University of Hawaii. When the war broke out, martial law was declared, they abolished all the unions. One of the first things that the military did on the advice of the planters and the political structure in Hawaii. By March the 3rd, Hawaii was placed under martial law. It was the only United States possession that was placed under martial law. And why? Because of the large concentration of Japanese population. They couldn't take them and put them in camps because then who's going to work the sugar and pineapple field? Everybody's rights were suspended. Everyone was affected by it. If the Japanese were interned, similar to the way they were interned on the mainland, it would have shut the sugar industry down. It was economic stalking. That really does illustrate the weight and the influence that the sugar industry had on the federal government. The war also changed the perceptions of plantation workers. Helen Nightalon Miller. The war definitely played a great part in it because we saw the freedom that could be had outside of the plantation. It was very, very direct for them when they went to work at Pearl Harbor. For the first time, I see Howley's cleaning the toilets and doing things like that. It was a shocker for the plantation, Filipinos and Japanese. Up to that point, we only saw whites as people well-dressed and being bosses and administrators. A lot of the women 
got jobs cleaning the dorms where the civilian Caucasians from the mainland stayed. And my mother told me one time, she was very surprised, she said, you know, I found that some of these Howleys don't know how to write. You know, these new experiences that they're having. And they, this person asked me, could you please do me a favor? Could you please write for me while I tell you what to write? You know, my mother said, sure. So he would tell her. And then later on, after she gets through cleaning, she, there's an envelope, and then there's some money in there. And a new generation was growing up with a different experience to their parents, Abba Ramos and James Ho. The mistake the missionaries did, they kept everybody separated, but the mistake they made is they sent the children to the same school and they all came out speaking pidgin English. <laughs> My gang growing up was cosmopolitan. Naturally, uh, we had Japanese, we had Filipinos, we had Haoles, Hawaiians, Portuguese, Spanish, Koreans. That was a makeup of our gang. <laughs> so, you know, it was very cosmopolitan. The economic and political life of Hawaii was dominated by the Big Five, five companies that controlled all the shipping and distribution of goods in the islands and ran the plantations. They set the living standards for their workers. Harold He, principal negotiator for C. Brewer and Company in their sugar negotiations, Senator Inouye, and Abba Ramos. Well, it was the plantations that initiated those programs. They had medical care provided the percocet. Everyone in the, in the employment and their families were eligible for medical care. I used to call them patrons. And in many ways, these patrons were quite advanced in their attitude. You will find that Hawaii was the first place where workers had a health program. There were plantation hospitals, plantation clinics, plantation doctors, schools, churches, and such. The only thing is that in return for this so-called largesse, they expected loyalty and labor with no questions. If he can get a trained monkey to unload that box cut tomorrow morning, rest assured they'll have him over there and they'll have some bananas for lunch. And you'll be out on the street looking for work. Simple as that. You've got to remember, they follow only one rule of economic law, and that's maximum production, minimum cost, yields the greatest amount of profit for them. They don't deviate from that. Martial law in Hawaii was eased in 1943, and organizing began. Eddie Lapa, Saru Kabawachi, Abba Ramos, Akwan McElrath, Congressman Neil Abercrombie, and Senator Inouye. I was coming out from the factory, and I just happened to be the first guy walking out of the factory. So here's the two big guys, they look like animals to me. He said, hey, bro, you want to join the union? I said, well, what is that? I didn't, know, I didn't know what is that. You know, I was like 18 or 19 years old. He said, come to the meeting tonight. I told him, where? Down the beach. Okay. Yeah, here come Oko, you're a longshoreman, and they came out. And what I did was we used to go out during the night, dark hours, because if the plantation catches you organizing, you'll be thrown out because we had no protection, no? Yeah, but they were good enough to sign because everybody was getting tired with the wages we were having, eh? They would have secret meetings. What they would do is they would meet on the church and they would make like they were playing cards. They had a card game going. My job was to go down and escort 
men like Dave Thompson, Henry Smith, Jack Hall, and those guys would come and bring them to the back way so the camp boss wouldn't see them and snuck them in under the church. I remember going to all of these meetings of husky longshoremen and telling them why, you know, this little Chinese woman, they should be joining a union, that kind of thing. So then one Sunday afternoon with five workers from Hawaiian Pineapple Company, Bob and I, we organized Hawaiian Pineapple Company in our living room one Sunday afternoon. And in those days, grassroots politics was not just a phrase. It was real. It was visceral. It was neighborhood activity. But the union members were the shock troops, uh, particularly the ILWU. They were the lead dog on that labor sled. I mean, one of the ironies of history is, is that the so-called radical ILWU organized these very conservative peasants. That's where they came from. This is peasant culture. We were able to pick out the leaders in those segregated camps where there was a great feeling of solidarity, and we just went through the organizing like wildfire so that it was a lark for us. The ILW would pass out circulars. They can't afford newspaper ads, so they pass out circulars. And you knew that here was this fat guy who was their employer, <laughs> <laughs> and the downtrodden guy was a worker. <laughs> they got the message fast. Three ILWU Howleys, Jack Hall, Harry Bridges, and Louis Goldblatt, were now supporting the island longshoremen who wanted to organize plantation workers. Though Bridges, president of the union, and Jack Hall, Hawaii regional director, were often at odds. Sanford Zolberg, retired city editor of the Honolulu Advertiser. Hall disliked Bridges, Bridges disliked Hall, and Hall claimed Bridges would come to Hawaii like, like on a white charger, and he'd knock down all the ducks that Hall had put. I am using their own words, you will understand. I am not inventing it. Bridges says he loves the bourgeois life. <laughs> About that, the insult of all insults, he loved the bourgeois. <laughs> he was wearing a clean shirt every day. I don't know. But Hall was effective. He successfully. Okay, we're <clears throat> playing that feature about. Uh, Union organizing in Hawaii, that was part one. It's called From Piers to Plantations. And talking about the early days of organizing in Hawaii. If you have a set of labor cards, you can read about Harry Kamoku, Aquan Makalreth, who were lead organizers in those Hawaiian campaigns. Um... I want to play some music now. A lot of talking, a lot of everything. Let's play some music and then we'll do radio labor. Honey in the Rock. We bring more than a paycheck to our loved ones and families. We bring more than a paycheck. 
teacher, to our loved ones and family, more than a paycheck, to our loved ones and families, we bring more than a paycheck, to our loved ones and family, more than a paycheck, to our loved ones and family, I wanted more. But what I've got here today is more than I bargained for. When I walk through that door, I bring home asbestosis and silicosis around long black lung disease. And radiation hits the children before they really been conceived. We bring more than a paycheck. To our, to our loved ones and family, more than a paycheck. To our loved ones and family, I wanted more than a paycheck. But what I got here today is more than I bargained for. When I walk through that door, I bring home asbestosis and silicosis for Long black lung disease <coughs> and radiation hits the children before they've really been conceived. We bring more, more than just a little paycheck. You're bringing more than a paycheck. I'm bringing more, you're bringing more than just a little paycheck. Cause it's important that you know that whatever we job there is the fear that disease will take its toll. If not disease and injury, my Lord, maybe for your lot. And if not injury, then stress is going to tie you up in knots.
You got to hustle now, the 815 is due. Red Jam. Red Jam. That's what you keep shouting to the throng. It's no snap. Red Jam. And yet you have to tote that baggage all day long. Whenever folks go on vacation, you at the railroad station, ready to lend them a hand. But some of them don't understand that a nickel or two, like a dollar to you. So red jam, red jam. Save the tips you get for if you do. Then red jam, old jam. Perhaps someday you will be calling red jam too. record probably is one of the nicest things that can ever happen to an artist. These fellows can be rightly proud. It's their first gold record for their first record. The award-winning Get a Job by the
Jagged jigsaw pieces Tossed about the room I saw my grandma sweeping With her old straw broom But she didn't know she was doing She could hardly understand That she was really sweeping up Pieces of a man Saw my daddy meet the mailman And I heard the mailman say Now don't you take this letter too hard now, Jimmy They've laid off nine others today He could hardly understand That he was only talking to 
pieces of a man. I saw the thunder and heard the lightning and felt the burden of his shame. And for some unknown reason, never turned my of that letter were tossed about the room and now I hear the sound of silence come knifing through the gloom but they don't know what they are doing They could hardly understand that they're only arresting pieces of a man. I saw him go to pieces. Beautiful there, Gil Scott Heron. Um, that set following our long history of uh, organizing in Hawaii featured right there Gil Scott Heron with a beautiful rendition of what happens or what happened to a guy who loses his job the shame and the disgrace as well as the sense of loss. Pieces of a man. And before that, uh, Louis Armstrong playing about those people who worked at Grand Central Station in New York as porters, the red caps. They saying, red cap, get going. You got to be there by a certain time. And then a little more lighthearted, Shanana with Get a Job, the silhouettes. Looking for a job for me, you know, the, the whole thing about looking for a job. You're kind of like 
a trapeze artist and you're hung out there in midair to see if uh, somebody's going to catch you. And before that, the DC-based Honey in the Rock with We Bring More Home Than Just the Paycheck. We bring asbestos, silicon, brown lung, black lung disease, radiation. I wanted more pay, but what I've got today is more than I bargained for when I walked through that door. And so on. Sweet honey in the rock. This is The Bee, and you're listening to Labor and Love Radio. And right now we're going to... Check out Radio Labor, our worldwide news report. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, May 21st, 2021. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, country music and working people. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. Now, if you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. You got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You got to build you a union, got to make it strong. This is Radio Labor. Country music has been traditionally related to the struggles of working people. But is it now changing? That is one of the issues being addressed in a university course by Tim Fowler. Mr. Fowler is conducting a course called Class, Country Music, and Social Change for Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada. The two-week extensive course will run in mid-July 2021. It will cover almost 100 years of the relations between country music and workers. I asked Mr. Fowler how country music is connected to workers. Country music has always reflected the lives of working people. The genre has always told stories. The songs almost always have a story element to them. And you can hear songs of miners, of oil patch workers, farmers, truckers. There's this whole subgenre that pops up about trucking songs. Most recently, stories of retail workers and the way that working people's lives have changed across time gets reflected in country music songs. You get songs about changing nature of rural life, about workers moving to cities, to finding jobs. How people have responded to these changes shows up a lot in the lyrics, too. You get songs where people living in cities and they're thinking about what rural life back home once was. It's a really, to me, interesting reflection of the lives that working people, mostly in the United States, but sometimes in Canada, too, have gone through for the past hundred or so years. What topics and issues will the course address? The course is a hundred-year history, hundred-ish year history of the genre of country music. I became really interested in that. I noticed there's sort of these two movements that take part in country music. There's always been a more radio-friendly version of the genre that seems to broadly try to appeal to the middle classes, 
it might just be mistaken for pop music at times. There's not a lot of country twang element to it. And at the same time, there's always been a, a movement for a more harder country sound that's less concerned with getting play on the radio. And I found that type of music frequently has more of a political or more of a working class bent to it. So I traced the two histories of country music from the 1920s to about today. And I look at things like the way gender has been portrayed or not portrayed in country music. We've seen a lot of women country music stars in the past few years say there's a gender problem in country music. Country songs written by women aren't being played on the radio anymore. And that's true. And it always struck me as one of the first acts we can really call country was the Carter family, two women in that. So how do we get from one of the first country bands being two-thirds women to women aren't on country radio today? I look at the history of race in country music and how early country music drew on influences of, of Black Americans, you know, the banjo and, and blues style music to country music today is very white. And then I dip in and out of some of the more overt political statements that country bands have made and country artists have made. Can you tell us a bit about country music and social change today? Country music gets wrapped up in the culture wars in the United States, for lack of a, a better term, where class gets reduced to this purely cultural variable. There's not a lot of an economic element to it at all. And country music gets pointed to as sort of this thing that, you know, quote unquote, real Americans or real working people listen to. And it's a signifier of this somewhat reactionary, somewhat populist nature of, you know, right-wing politics. And I'm not sure that mainstream country music today is reflective of working Americans. The genre is really quite white. We know that the working classes in North America are rather ethnically diverse and racially diverse. If you think of country songs, a lot of people think of, to the point of cliche, songs about trucks. And I've got a, a friend who pointed out that average sale price of a Ford F-Series truck is about $55,000, pops out at about $80,000. And that's used as a signifier of you know, working class identity. For that money, you could go out and buy a BMW, and no one would think of that as an identifier of working class uh, identity. So I think country music today is reflective of a, a very narrow segment of the population, and in some ways is not as reflective of social change in America and in Canada as it used to be. You mentioned the American working class. It seems that the working class in the United States has been increasingly aligned with the Republican Party and its right-wing stances, which has resulted, I'm assuming, in fewer left-oriented union-positive songs. Is that true? Is that what's happening? I think so. I think we have a, a bunch of mainstream country stars who are proudly Republican, proudly align themselves with conservative causes, and you know, sing these songs that certainly have some pride about working, but it, it's in that sort of bootstrapism as everyone should be proud to work and pull themselves up by their bootstraps. 
if you look for it, there is a left-wing tradition in modern country. I find it today in the subgenres of alternative country, sometimes called Americana, which has a more overtly left progressive political view and challenges some of these assumptions. I think in mainstream country, we can point to few progressive or left voices. I, I can think of uh, Marin Morris. I can think of the Chicks, maybe Jason Isbell. But yeah, largely the country music you hear on the radio today is really closely aligned with populist, conservative, Republican movements. The course, Class Country Music and Social Change, is being conducted for two weeks starting July 12, 2021. You can find more information about the course by emailing Mr. Fowler at tfowler at brocku.ca. That's T-F-O-W-L-E-R at B-R-O-C-K-U dot C-A. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world in 36 languages. Here's a small sample of their work. Our top stories section included links to coverage of the first-ever online international labor conference, the International Labor Organization's General Meeting. The ILO is a tripartite body with representatives of national governments, employers, and workers. This year, the workers group elected Annette Chipeleme of Zambia as conference vice president. She will lead discussions at the conference on the ILO's response to COVID-19 and on the organization's position on social protections. We also had coverage of the arrest of a Kenyan migrant worker in Qatar after he publicized the working conditions he was experiencing. And we carried stories about the global labor movement's reaction to the conflict between Palestine and Israel, and especially the deaths of civilians in Gaza. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found analyses of the impact that public sector wage freezes and real wage cuts will have on women in countries like the United Kingdom, Canada, and Australia. We also covered the push for safe public transport by women trade unionists in Tunisia. And unfortunately, we carried stories about the garment workers shot by police during a protest over wage theft and cancelled Eid bonuses in Bangladesh. Our health and safety coverage included the role of trade unions in overcoming vaccine hesitancy around the world, calls for school closures by education unions in Cape Verde as infections there surge, and celebrations by New Zealand dockers as the CEO of the country's largest port resigned, in part as a result of that port's dismal safety record. Our photo of the week is of a Polish worker, just one of 5,000 IKEA employees in that country, whose union won a huge victory last year in the fight for decent wages. That fight and the victory was part of the Building and Woodworkers International Global IKEA Union Building Strategy. Labor Start hosts online solidarity actions at the requests of unions around the world. This week, we'd like to highlight two urgent appeals for online solidarity with trade unionists imprisoned in Turkey and in Algeria. Those are just two of our 11 active campaigns. Look for details of these and other campaigns on our site. 
It takes only seconds to send a message that could help change workers' lives for the better. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is the American folk singer Pete Seeger with Talkin' Union. Now, if you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. You got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You got to build you a union, got to make it strong. But if you all stick together, boys, it won't be long. You get shorter hours, better working conditions, vacations with pay, take your kids to the seashore. It ain't quite this simple, so I better explain just why you got to ride on the union train. Cause if you wait for the boss to raise your pay, we'll all be awaiting till judgment day. We'll all be buried. Gone to heaven. St. Peter will be the straw boss then. Now you know you're underpaid, but the boss says you ain't. He speeds up the work till you're about to faint. You may be down and out, but you ain't beaten. You can pass out a leaflet and call a meeting. Talk it over. Speak your mind. Decide to do something about it. Of course, the boss may persuade some poor damn fool to go to your meeting and act like a stool, but you can always tell a stool, though, that's a fact. He's got a yaller streak running down his back. He doesn't have to stool. He'll always get along on what he takes out of blind men's cups. You got a union now, and you're sitting pretty. Put some of the boys on the steering committee. The boss won't listen when one guy squawks, but he's got to listen when the union talks. He'd better be mighty lonely. Everybody decide to walk out on him. Suppose they're working you so hard it's just outrageous and they're paying you all starvation wages. You go to the boss and the boss would yell, before I raise your pay, I'd see you all in hell. Well, he's puffing a big cigar, feeling mighty slick because he thinks he's got your union lick. Well, he looks out the window and what does he see but a thousand pickets and they all agree he's a bastard. Unfair. Slave driver. Betty beats his wife. Now, boys, you come to the hardest time. The boss will try to bust your picket line. He'll call out the police, the National Guard. They'll tell you it's a crime to have a union card. They'll raid your meeting. They'll hit you on the head. They'll call every one of you a damn red unpatriotic. Japanese spies. Sabotaging national defense. But out at Ford, here's what they found, and out at Vulty, here's what they found, and out at Alice Chalmers, here's what they found, and down at Bethlehem, here's what they found, that if you don't let red baiting break you up, and if you don't let stool pigeons break you up, and if you don't let vigilantes break you up, and if you don't let race hatred break you up, you'll win. What I mean, take it easy, but take it. And that's it, labor news you can use. You can find our international features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radiolabor. I'm Mark Belagia. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about solidarity.
struggle of South African miners. They sit in their stinky, funky, filthy, flea-ridden barracks and hostels. They think about the loved ones they may never see again because they might already have been forcibly removed from where they last left them or wantonly murdered in the dead of night by roving and marauding gangs of no particular origin. We are told. They think about their lands and their herds that were taken away from them with the gun and the and the tear gas and the gatling and the cannon. And when they hear that choo choo train, a chugging and a pumping and a smoking and a pushing and a puffing, crying and a stealing and a chicken and a They always curse and they curse the coal train, the coal train that brought them to Johannesburg.
Okay, everybody, that was um, Umasa Kayla, and he was singing about the coal trains in South Africa and how the workers see the, the coal trains and they hate them. And uh, Umasa Kayla sings to that that song about how it's kind of like the chain gang with Sam Cooke. Uh, right now, we're talking to our campus uh, correspondents, Vita and Yemen. And my question to them, which I honestly don't know the answer to myself, although I've thought a whole lot of stuff on it, is where does white supremacy come from? Why do people like Trump? So you guys got an idea? Enlighten yes. me here. <laughs> yes. I think that there are several things about our country that have been hijacked, like the working class or the conspiracy theories or religion. All these things are things that are usually good and bases and subjects that are can be used for good. But over the last, like, what, I think 40 years or something with like television and everything, I think things have changed a lot. And I think people think they're being Christian or they think they're being like pro workers when they hear someone like Trump say, oh, I'm going to take care of you guys. I'm going to do this. Or like those guys, I'm going to, you know, drain the swamp or whatever. Like people have felt for a long time. And I think it's a reaction to Obama too. I think 
people have just felt for a long time like all these things aren't being addressed because we're moving into this new progressive era. And then Trump just came out of nowhere and talked to everybody's <laughs> like biggest like based fears. And as opposed to changing, he was like, oh, let's just go back to all the things like that we're comfortable with. Like, you know, that that make us comfortable, like almost this old demographic, like probably baby boomers or something who are more. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I guess conservative. Yeah. I yeah. Think people also maybe young people like Trump, young white kids, because, you know, they feel threatened by Latinos african-americans arabs you know they see us shining and it makes them it makes them feel threatened because they've been told their whole life they're number one they're the best and then when they see others being the best and of course like america is now saturated with like so many people of color uh-huh. all over immigrants and then like generations that have lived here uh-huh. so now being american means something very different than what it used to mean and i think that those people like don't want to accept that you know being american has always meant being an immigrant um because americans are immigrants none of them were born here except native americans Mm -hmm. so and mexicans (laughs) so it's just um that's what i think it is i think it's like t i think it's a mixture of tv the news it's a mixture of anger it's a mixture of counter racism like people being racist all over again because they saw someone like president obama um you know be up there and it probably scared them a lot and then they see in the news like the worst perceptions of arabs the worst perceptions of latinos the worst perceptions of african americans and they're so stupid they literally believe whatever they see on tv and they think that's the truth they think if you see a latino oh that's a gangbanger if you see a arab woman with a hijab oh that's a terrorist like it's the dumbest thing in the world uh-huh. it's the dumbest thing in the world so uh-huh. you know we're it's like gore vidal said like we're the our education system is the joke of the world like we're idiots and um i think we're only getting worse you know it's like the roman empire like we're just swelling until we collapse on ourselves yeah yeah well i you know i certainly agree with everything you said i i think People have those beliefs, and they have had those beliefs. And someone like Trump, Trump came along and said, "It's okay to believe this. It's okay yeah. to express it. It's okay to be an asshole," you know. Yeah, um, or to beat up little Asian women waiting for the bus. But, but it uh, it runs counter to at least the expressed goals and foundation of. United States. Howard Zinn always said that the U.S. Uh, made a big thing of social justice, declaration of independence, and all that in order to attract workers Yeah. with, with the language of social justice. Right, right. Yeah, immigrants and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I also think that, like, remember how there was that 1819 historical project that yes. Trump tried to shut down? I think it's about that, too, like denying history, because if we just start talking about the history, it'll be clear why certain groups are disadvantaged, why certain groups can never get up, you know, so, you know, they want to, it's like American exceptionalism or white exceptionalism, like, oh, no, the reason you guys are all down is not because we've been on your backs for centuries. The reason you guys are all down is because you just don't work hard enough and you're not 
blesses us and loves us and not you. Yeah, yeah, that's why Thanksgiving is uh, such a big holiday. Because yeah. Thanksgiving says that the the project, the, the white European project in America was blessed by God, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's why I don't even, yeah. But yeah, I mean, um, Yemen wants to say something as well. Oh, but please, that's just yeah. My, like, response, you know, and being half white, half Mexican, like, I see it a lot on both sides. And I see, like, you know, even with Christian people, it's sad how they've been hijacked. Yeah. Hey, Bill. Hi. So, yeah, my take on Hello, the matter. Yemen. Hey, how's it going? Okay. Yeah, so, my, my take on the matter is uh, it's, um, uh, well, people vote for Trump because, uh, well, first of all, I believe that half of the white people, in the, half of white people are racist, if not covert racist. Um, and and that, that's a statistic from Tom Hartman, who's a white man himself. Um, and I, I, I seriously think that, like, a lot of our problems are rooted in the fact, in that fact that, like, you know, you're either a racist or an open racist. Like, a white man who has a white man always have the influence, right? Like, you have the influence, you have the power, you give and take self-esteem. And so, um, if they're the ones, you know, who are all high and mighty and not, like, taking a look at themselves, then we're all in trouble, then, you know, we're, we're all of us are in trouble because they, you know, they wrote the Constitution, right? And so, essentially, what it is, is it's... Um, it's white. It's white. It's, it's white people, uh, most particularly white men, thinking that like they have domain over a lot of things that they don't, uh -huh. and, and then that's why like you know when someone like Trump comes in, they think they know what's best for everybody, uh -huh. and they, they refuse to believe that hey like you know, like like for example take Vita's mother right she's you know a strong single woman she has multiple properties she's struggled she's done everything she's raised her daughter and all that stuff. But in 2020, she goes out to take the trash in her complex, and she gets the cops called on her. You know what I mean? Yeah, the Asian woman was taking video of her. Yeah, you know. My mom is a homeowner there, and that Asian woman is a renter and just know, moved there recently. She owns more properties than she than that woman can count. You know yeah, but I mean? the Asian like, woman is a model minority and took up what the white people say to do and started doing it right away. Exactly. You know? Yeah, it's, that's how you get so, to be American. Richard Pryor used to say that. But yeah, that's how you get to be American by putting down Latinos and blacks. Right. That that's yeah. what Americans do. That's what whites do. Yeah. So I think that like essentially the problem. It's is, not just white people. It's, well, I mean, I'm it's trying literally to, all minorities. The stage I'm saying is like they set the stage for everybody else, right? Because we all like whether you're a minority, you know. How many times have you seen like people trying to be friends with the, like the white CEO or like the white this like they, everybody wants to kiss ass, you know? And that you know. Like I say, 50% of like white people are racist, and the, the, the sooner people realize that, the sooner they, they'll realize that, oh, like, that little move I did right there, like, I think I'm perfectly, like, you know, put together. I think I'm not a racist, but actually, that was pretty racist. Where did that come from? You know, if you have, like, if you have those little, those little things, imagine, like, how much, like, you know, bigger things, like, people have. Like, we all have to heal ourselves and realize, like, like, the narrative that's been built. Uh, around white people and them being the saviors and all that stuff, like that's that's like we're bad hands, right? And if we keep trusting like the way the constitution is set up, it's all white men, right? Yeah, and that's what it was meant to to be: white men and and uh, landowning class people, owner class people, whether they're white or not. 
Anyway, I, I've got to go. Um, I want to thank you again for your views. And, uh, you know, you're helping me out here by, by expressing yeah, yourself this way. So, uh, I'll be seeing you guys tomorrow. Okay, Yemen, thank you. Vita, thank you. And another Labor and Love exclusive. Okay. Okay, that was Vita and Yemen, our uh, campus correspondents. And as usual, I've got way more material here than I have time to work it. It's time for me to get out of here and hand you over to Mr. Flat Black Plastic, Scott Walker, and his uh, vinyl show. This is the B, and we're telling you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, where you work, you're on the menu. And never, never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's only a waste of time. This is the B signing off. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. Goodbye and good work. We'll be together again on next Saturday at 10 a.m. See you or hear you or talk to you then. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio, my friend.
mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny radio, my friend. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, shoot. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Let's Spiegelman. We're hosts of... Follow us on the podcast by with our acronym L W A F L M O Y T. We watch a full length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and yeah. watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah, L W A F L M O Y T. Yeah, That's every Sunday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, 5%. Five yeah. percent. Right. I'm so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show. Five p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh, uh, da, 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 da. let's watch full length. Oh, wait, let's do a full minute promo. Oh, never mind. Oh, Bye. See, See you next month. I was just leaving the theater. <laughs> 1969 gold Cadillac with the white interior. Oh, yeah. And I started to do some thinking. Around in and on the freeway, and I'm having a really, really good time. Black, black, black. Smoking big spliffs and cruising. Saturday, night like two. On the freeway. Good feeling. I'll tell you. Can I see? Laurie's This is absolutely right. I am an adolescent. And I will cut the orange Henry! Yeah. Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Hey, everybody. Listen to the Weekly Review with Roman every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. This is an unapologetically anti-capitalist program. We interview community organizers, 
activists, and artists. We talk about ways you can take action right now. So listen in to the Weekly Review every Friday from noon to 2 p.m. My name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities. As your Chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders. Look good on camera. End all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. who have an insatiable appetite for all things in life, who scream at nothing and everything at the same time, who dance till sunup, who cause the sun to set again with irreverent bow, who rival the moon with gravitational force, who leave rooms feeling empty and earthquake struck, who don't give a fuck, who make, who do, who dream out loud and laugh like maniacs, who draw shock and awe on faces graced with watching, who create from the soul of an orgasm, who swagger even alone in the shower, who fight with passion, and love with passion and our passion who catapult over cliffs in the name of revolution who would rather die than fall in line to conform who constantly challenge the norm who greet each and every day as if just born i say to you i know your greatness the way a suicide jumper knows weightless just before the impact and in fact i know it best when i say to you i love you Hello there, my friends out at Mutiny Radio. Chester Cashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as Moofy's over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Bamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10. They have a fun time at Pamtastics Deep in the Mission, where you can laugh off your tushy every Friday for a mere $10. 
And $10, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with, so to wipe it off for, <laughs> it's in duty this. And if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, don't worry, don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show in the comfort of it. Like your Aspen Summer Cottage on the Mountain Ridge with the kayaks. No, no. Just go to podcast.pcrcollective.org or mutinyradio.fm podcasts and look for Comedy Clubhouse with a K. You can download it for free. But we'd love to see you every Friday, 8 to 10, down here at Mutiny Radio. Laugh off your tushy and save your life. Because you know what's better than laughter? Well, it's a cash cock, baby. (laughs) Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasure. Well, he, 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 he was just 